The Big Wake Up by Mark Coggins is what you hope every private eye novel will be, says Edgar Award-winning author Megan Abbott. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 18, Nappy Boy Or even better, maybe it was time for Chris Duckworth to find out. I reached back to snag the phone and dialed his number. He answered on the second ring. Duckworth Research Service, Dead South American Cultural Icons, a speciality. Very funny, I said. Where are you? DRS headquarters, of course. Yeah, I thought I heard the DRS espresso machine in the background. And before you get started with the frothing jokes, I've got something more important than Evita's background I want you to look into. It's hard to imagine something more important than the person one writer called the Robin Hood of the 20th century, the Cinderella of the tango, and the Sleeping Beauty of Latin America. How about an idea on where Sleeping Beauty might be snoozing? I heard Chris reposition the phone, and when he spoke again, his voice was louder and more urgent. Are you serious? I thought you weren't even sure you were going to look for her. This sort of fell into my lap, I said, and gave him a quick summary of my rediscovery of Arrow's list and what I thought it might mean. So you want me to go to Mountain View Cemetery and check it out? No, that is most emphatically not what I want you to do. I don't want anyone following you there and focusing attention on that particular cemetery. The only one who knows I exist is Vilas, and he doesn't even have my name. You're getting paranoid in your old age. That's the only way you get old in the detective biz. So, what's left? I want you to research the people on the list. What, all 20 of them? No, all 16 of them. Here, type them into your laptop. I read them off, then said, find out if they are real people with real histories or just aliases. For the ones buried in family mausoleums, find out the background on the family. You want me to pay special attention to this Pena person? No, that was just a hunch. I don't want it to prejudice you. But if you can, you might find out if it's possible to buy a family mausoleum from a living relative who's willing to evict his family members, or if you're allowed to sell a single slot in a mausoleum. Like taking on a border? Yeah, a long-term border. All right. Sounds like it might be fun. Am I only supposed to use the internet here at DRSHQ, or can I go to the library, make phone calls, etc.? The library is fine, but don't under any circumstances call Mountain View Cemetery. No tip-offs. Chris partially covered the phone and I heard him say, Connor, you really fill out that green apron. And then he came back on the line. Where were we? He asked. You were just going to stop flirting with the Starbucks employees and get to work. Oh, right. I'll give you a call later and let you know what I come up with. I closed the phone. All this lounging around on the floor had caused my bum knee to stiffen up. I tottered to my feet and limped to the bathroom where I showered and shaved. 
I was just tucking in my shirt tail when the pounding on the door started. Open up, Reardon, said a voice I recognized as Lieutenant Kittredge's. Avon calling. I cursed under my breath. I didn't want to leave Arrow's list in plain sight, so I jogged over to grab it before answering. I tucked both it and my shirt into my pants and undid the security chain to pull the door open. Kittredge stood on the other side, with a grin as wide as his ears. Sergeant Dicehart stood next to him, and two more of San Francisco's finest loitered behind. Hello, boys, I said. Kittredge had something hidden behind his back and was obviously working hard to suppress a lot of pent-up excitement. Aren't you going to ask me in? Like I said last time, the hallway works. It doesn't work if you have a search warrant. He shoved a piece of paper into my chest and barreled past me into the apartment. The other San Francisco cops followed, leaving me and Dysart blinking at each other across the threshold. Mind if I ask what the warrant's for? I asked. Dysart nodded matter-of-factly. Not at all. We're looking for weapons used in the commission of an assault on police officers yesterday evening. And why do you think I was involved? You need a basis for doing the search, don't you? Yep, probable cause. Last night, officers from my department were fired upon by someone robbing a grave at Holy Cross Cemetery in Colma. Based on the testimony of trustworthy witnesses, we've reason to believe you were involved. Trustworthy witnesses on the scene? No, not on the scene. This is a crock, Dysart, and you know it. You or Kittredge must have a judge in your pocket. Dysart smiled fractionally. San Francisco County has jurisdiction. It's based on where the property to be searched is located, not the location of the alleged crime. Meaning Kittredge has a crony of his on the bench to finagle it. You both know full well I didn't have anything to do with what did or did not happen last night. This is a fishing expedition, plain and simple. Let's go inside and talk about it. I expect the search will take a little while. He stepped past me into the apartment. I wedged the door closed and followed him into the living room, where he sat down at one of the chairs at my folding card table. I stood over him. You're the good cop, huh? Dysart laughed. Only by default. The other role was clearly taken. Come on, have a seat. I looked back at the bedroom where I could see Kittredge directing one of the uniformed cops to tear down the bed. The second cop was going through the hallway closet where my bases were stored. He started to unzip the case for the upright. That's a $100,000 Alberto Bagliamini base, I said to him. If you so much as scratch it, I'll have your job. He ignored me and continued pulling on the zipper. The last time I'd played the Bagliomini was at a gig back in Chris. It was only the month before, but it seemed like a very long time ago. You're not doing yourself any favors, said Dysart, bringing me back to the present. Sit down and we'll talk. I pulled up the other chair. You're going to read me my rights then? You know better than that. We only give Miranda warnings when we take suspects into custody. You're free to stay or go. You and I are just shooting the breeze. Shooting the breeze, sure. If you're not taking me into custody, that just reinforces what I said about the search warrant. You guys know I didn't take any pot shots at police officers last night. Maybe. 
But I have to say that I was surprised when I got the call from the clerk at the Vital Statistics office. You told us that you were finished with the case, that your employer considered your assignment complete. Why did you go back to ask about more burial transit permits from 1974? Curiosity. Yes, but curiosity about what? You told us you were looking for a woman named Maria de Magistris. You found Maria de Magistris and, well, someone dug her up. Maybe your client. Maybe someone else. Why would you go looking for yet another body shipped from Europe, or South America, apparently, in 1974? Here was a time for lying, and the lying had better be good. Dysart wasn't an idiot. I dipped my head in a sort of confessional gesture. Look, Dysart, everything I told you yesterday was true. I was as surprised as anyone when the grave at Cypress Lawn was dug up. It didn't fit with what Rivero told me. I figured there had to be more to the story. So I did a little research. I typed Maria de Magistris into Google. Dysart nodded, and I knew he had done the same thing. And what did you find? He asked. I found the name was an alias that Evita Perone had been buried under in the 1950s. That, coupled with the fact my clients were from Argentina, seemed a little too coincidental. Dysart folded his hands together on top of the card table. Then did you think it was Evita in Cypress Lawn? I don't know. Google said she was buried in Buenos Aires, so it didn't seem likely. But all this still doesn't explain why you went back to the vital statistics office. Like I said, I was curious. It seemed a little obvious to reuse the same alias, so I wondered if there had been other bodies brought into San Mateo County at the same time. You mean you thought the Maria de Magistris body was a kind of head fake to cover the burial of the real deal? Yeah, something like that. Dysart kept his hands folded on the table, but leaned back in his chair. He looked like a judge about to rule on an objection. That's pretty subtle, Riordan. What seems more likely to me is you heard from Rivero that they dug up the wrong body and he hired you again to look for the real one. Could you tell it that way instead? No, I couldn't. No one told me that they dug up the wrong body, and Rivero has not rehired me. Do you know where he is? Nope. Then who is the other person who came to the vital statistics office to research permits? There was a crashing noise in the kitchen. I jumped up to see the same patrol cop who'd been manhandling the base, hovering over a broken plate. I turned back to Dysart. I don't know who he is, and it should be obvious that I'm not working with or for him either, since he keeps shadowing everything I do. I pushed my chair back under the card table. I think I'm done shooting the breeze with you, Dysart. You're a nice enough guy, but you're sailing under Kittredge's colors. You'd have done better to come by yourself without the warrant. Dysart tried to keep his face impassive, but the barest of flickers around his eyes told me I'd scored a hit. Kittredge and his knuckle-draggers spent another 40 minutes tearing the apartment apart. I twice had to interfere when they threatened to do more serious damage than broken crockery, once when they were shifting through my collection of vinyl jazz LPs, and again when they thought it would be a good idea to tear the fabric from the back of my five-foot-tall, Altic-Lansing voice-of-the-theater speakers. In the end, the only thing they found to take back with them was my Smith & Wesson 38 caliber revolver, 
and that hadn't been fired in months. Kittredge was visibly frustrated. Standing near me in the hallway by the door, he shook the revolver in my face. You've got a permit on file to carry a concealed weapon, a Glock 9mm, and this ain't it. Where is it? At my office, maybe? Try again. You didn't look at the warrant close enough. We hit your office before we came over here. I'd been dreading the question about the Glock, but maybe there was a way to turn it to my advantage. Remember what I told you when you barged in here yesterday? What? I told you my apartment had been broken into. The Glock was stolen. Bullshit! You have to report a firearms theft. I am now. What about the knife? I know you carry one on your calf, and we found the harness. Same story. If Kittredge's anger could be compared to a blender setting, he was well past frappe. He jerked around to shout at one of his men. Pat him down. Hey, I said, you've got a warrant to search the apartment, not me. We're looking for weapons. If you've got one concealed on your person, it's fair game. The blonde Scandinavian-looking cop who'd been helping Kittredge in the bedroom came up to search me. Hands on the wall, please, he said. With just shirt sleeves and pants, there wasn't much to check, but he went through the motions anyway, lingering over my calves and ankles in case I still had the knife. I was doubly glad I'd been careful with Arrow's list and that there'd been no telltale crinkling at my waist. Nothing said Blondie, and stood up. I took my hands off the wall and turned back to face Kittredge. Looks like it's time to see you boys to the door. Be sure to let me know if any of the slugs you picked up from last night matched that thirty-eight caliber. Although, I guess people don't use thirty-eight calibers much anymore, do they? God damn it, Reardon, said Kittredge. If you think... Hey, Lieutenant. Put in Blondie. I've got an idea. What? What the fuck? Blondie cringed. It's just that a lot of these old apartments, they have storage areas for each tenant in the basement. Maybe we should check it out. My heart did the Fosbury flop, and I felt a jolt of intense vertigo. There was no explaining the head in the satchel downstairs. Kittredge raised his eyebrows in an exaggerated fashion. There's an idea. Reardon... You got a storage locker or something in the basement? I waited too long before I muttered, yes. Kittred smiled. He has one, but he doesn't seem too happy about it. Let's all take a ride on the elevator to check out Reardon's storage locker. We all of us, Kittredge, Dicehart, and the two uniformed cops and me, filed out the door and into the building's tiny accordion gate elevator. I stood at the back, staring at Blondie's freckled ear, trying to think of a way to stop Araceli's head from being discovered. At the end of the ride, Kittres pulled open the elevator gate, and we stepped into the dim and fusty basement. The space allocated to tenant storage was along the back wall. The lockers were little more than frame boxes with chicken wire stretched across the sides, top, and front. The door for each had a hasp, 
in case a tenant wanted to secure it with a small padlock. All the tenants had, although cutting the chicken wire to break in would have been trivial. Each locker had a letter stenciled on the two-by-four at the top of the door frame, and they were assigned randomly, without regard to the tenant's apartment number. I had the letter G. You're looking a little pale there, Reardon, said Kittredge. Why don't you point out your locker and we can get to work? I glanced past my own locker and the satchel inside and focused on the one to the right of it, letter H. It belonged to old man Lauterbach and contained only two dusty cardboard boxes. Lauterbach rarely came out of his apartment, much less descended to the basement, and I'd noticed before that the padlock in his locker wasn't actually latched. Rather than responding to Kittredge, I stepped up to his storage locker and wrapped my hand around the lock to hide the fact it was open. I fished out my ring of keys from my pocket and found the key for my own lock. I put it into Mr. Lauterbach's and pantomimed opening it. My back had been to everyone when I was going through this hokum, and I was relieved when I faced them that no one questioned the performance. I wasn't out of the woods yet, though. A lot would depend on what was in the boxes. I jerked open the door. There you go. Kittredge gestured for the uniformed cops. Blondie and the guy who'd broken the dish unstacked the boxes and each took one to open. I tried not to appear interested in the contents, but from where I stood, it looked like they were both full of old magazines. Jesus, said Blondie. Look at this. He held up a magazine with the title, Nappy Boy, the Journal for Diaper Lovers. The cover showed a woman in a nurse's uniform putting diapers on a middle-aged man. It was not an appetizing sight. Check this one, said the other cop. He held up another issue. This time the cover showed a woman in diapers cuddling a stuffed animal. Kittredge looked from one magazine to the other, then laughed. That's disgusting, Reardon, he said. No wonder you didn't want us to look down here. Exactly what kind of pervert are you? I felt heat come to my face, and I didn't have to feign embarrassment. Even Dysart was shaking his head. All right, I said. You've been through everything now. There are no firearms here. Put the magazines back and get out. Kittredge laughed again and walked into the locker to take one of the nappy boys from the closest box. He looked at the cover, smirked, and tucked it under his arm. I think we'll take this downtown with us, too. You never know. We might find some evidence stuck between the pages. I pointed to the elevator. Out. They piled into the car again and pulled the accordion door closed. The last image I had of Kittredge was him leering at me, brushing one index finger on the other in the shame-shame gesture as the elevator ascended. I returned the remaining nappy boys to the cardboard boxes, restacked them, closed Mr. Lauterbach's locker door, and then put the lock back on the hasp. I hoped he wouldn't miss just one of the magazines. For my part, I was never going to look at him the same way when I saw him in the building. I knew waiting for the elevator would take a long time, 
and I didn't put it past Kittredge to block it open, so I trudged up four flights of stairs to my apartment. When I got there, I heard the trill my cell phone made to alert me to an unread text message. I assumed it was Chris reporting some preliminary results. It turned out to be a very bad assumption. Intercepted M at M, the message read, Find E or get second flower vase. It was signed I. You have been listening to The Big Wake Up, a book publishers weekly described as outstanding in a starred review. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Hoggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markhoggins.com. <laughs>